This is episode 46 of the Less Is Made podcast with your host, Les, here. And my guest I had on for an interview on this episode, I need to introduce him to the rest of the world. His name is Peter Young. He is an author and has spent many years being a sports broadcaster covering a very wide range of sports throughout his career. Not only does he have cool stories to talk about as being a broadcaster, but a more personal story to him that the world needs to hear. It, it was very inspirational and very empowering listening to him talk about this very, very personal story slash tragedy that is happening with him, but he is still carrying on and is still not letting it make him afraid. I feel the world needs to hear what he has to say. You'll even hear me be a little teary-eyed because it really touched me as well. Just listening to everything that he had to say and just what has happened to him in his life. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy my talk with Peter. Alright, I'm going to start. This is the Lesson Made Podcast and I have a dis. A person that seems to have a bunch of a wonderful life. Please introduce yourself, a young man. Yeah, Les, thank you. This is uh, Peter Young coming to you from uh, just outside of beautiful Bozeman, Montana. Oh, you're in Montana now. Oh, with a big sky or big meadows or whatever. It's like a, a big out there, man. Montana is beautiful. Not a lot of people either. So you're lucky. Lucky. Yeah, so I, I'm born and raised in New Jersey. And uh, like if you stretch from. Oh, let's say like Boston down to DC, you know, that, that seaboard is about the same size as Montana, but we have about a million people. Whereas the East coast from Boston to DC is like what? 50 million. 40 yeah. Million? A lot of people there that you're not even lying. I mean that just that coast in that area, it's a commute. So for a lot of things that I know about you, you're, you're an accomplished uh, sports broadcaster and you, you, have a, a book out, your memoir, about um, getting out of a, a cult. Yep. So many, so inter- the, so many interesting things. Please drop your book uh, name. Sorry. Sure. The, the memoir is called Stop the Tall Man, Save the Tiger. It's on Amazon. All right. And you, they can find out on Amazon to look up your name or to look up the name of the book. Yep. Now, how did you get into sports broadcasting? Oh, great question. Okay. So uh, I'll give you the Reader's Digest version. uh, (laughs) I was an 80s kid, and I was going to be the next Larry Bird. Oh, man, I was so confident I was going to be the next Larry Bird. Well, played in college and was not the next Larry Bird, right? So then I got into coaching, and I was going to be the next John Wooden or Mike Krzyzewski. Well, that didn't happen either. So then at about 24, 25 years old, I said, I'm going to get into sports broadcasting and be the next Bob Costas. So... My first uh, job was doing the you know the six and ten sports in little old Pocatello, Idaho, and I made just over fourteen thousand dollars a year. Sheesh! So yeah, you, that was the nineties. Yeah, you're a basketball player then. Oh yeah, I mean I was obsessed with sports. And my first novel, first book that I wrote is a novel called The Blue Team. You can also get it on Amazon, and it's about faith in basketball. And the idea being that. As a Christian, my identity is something greater than myself rather than uh, I'm a basketball player. It's I'm a Christian who happens to play basketball. Therefore, it doesn't mean I'm going to be a better player. But if I miss the game-winning shot, my life's not going to come to an end. And, and I was uh, 
as we were talking before we started recording, I was a, still am a profound photographer, and you know how a lot of people, like, want to describe me as being a photographer? I'm like, no, I am just a photographer. It also has a life and so many other things, you know, and that is great to hear that you have that as well. It's like, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I also play basketball, and I'm, you know, doing all this other stuff. What you do as your job does not define you, you know, so... Right. And that's, I love using sports as a metaphor for life because what's true for the basketball player or the baseball player is also true for the butcher, the baker, or the banker, right? And so what we do does not, as you just said, define us. We need to have our identity in something greater than ourselves. Yeah, I, I, I was a football player myself growing up. So, you know, just playing football, it taught me teamwork, uh, camaraderie, just knowing how to interact with people, being social, and you know, like you said, you're 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 in this to have something bigger than yourself. You know, there, there's more to it. You know what I mean? Like, if you if you mess up, like you said, not making the game winning shot or whatever, you have a whole team that that sit there and can pick up if you're slacking during a uh, during a game. Yeah, I mean, you know, it doesn't make that moment any less important to that person, right? In fact, it, it, in many respects, you know, the kid that's going to take that game winning shot, or let's take the, the game winning free throw, right? Like, you know, you're down two, and you're on the line, you got to make two free throws to tie it, right? Well, if you're so obsessed about like, well, what'll happen to my life if I miss this shot? The chances are you're going to miss one of the two. But if you're in the moment, you're present, you're like, you know what? I love the game of basketball. I'm good at. It. I've practiced a long time, and the world won't end if I miss. I'm going to do my best. Probably get a better shot of making those two free throws, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it definitely does. I understand sports analogies because I am a sports guy myself. I, I, I'm like, it's like you know, I live in Maine, but I'm still a hometown uh, follower of my Tampa Bay Buccaneers. They're not doing so good this year, but I mean, that's where I'm from, and that's where I grew. Everyone worked for the team for a little bit, doing landscaping at their stadium. So I have a. I have much love for my uh, hometown there. So, in your forecasting career, what was one of, some of the teams you worked with? Well, so I did the local uh, sports in Southeast Idaho uh, for about two years. So, most people just get insights into the business. When most people start out, you know, it is slave wages. You're just trying to get experience. Mm-hmm. And so, again, I, I was mid-90s. I made $14,000 a year. So then I covered Idaho State and then the local high schools. There's no pro sports in Idaho. And then two years later, I got my big break, and I went to work for the Outdoor Life Network, which is now NBC Sports. It went from OLN to Versus to NBC Sports about 10, 15 years ago. So I did lumberjack and rodeo and speed skating and skiing and cycling, uh, mountain biking, all these kind of outdoor sports. Didn't, Didn't really do hunting and fishing, but did that for a long time. Traveled the world, traveled to most of the states, loved it. And then kind of the later part of my career, I did um, a lot of college football and basketball for ESPN3. Oh, wow. Okay. College basketball is really big. Really big. I mean, I, I like doing the whole brackets, you know, during uh, March Madness. It, it's always fun. So you you started working with teams later on in your career, so you did a lot of extreme sports. Uh, cycling. Yeah, so I how do you yeah. cover that? <laughs> so it's funny because like a lot of these sports, I would get assigned to it, you know, like beach soccer. I'm like, what are the rules of beach soccer? Like how many people are on the sand? Like I had no idea. So that, you know, with mountain biking or track cycling or road cycling, you know, I was drinking from a fire hose. Thank God for the internet, right? <laughs> to try and learn all this. Jeez. And uh, so you just, you just through osmosis get to know 
the characters, the storylines, the teams, the players, et cetera. And, and the thing that, that's fascinating, Les, is that every sport, whether it is, you know, like the number one sport in the world, either American football or soccer, right? Yeah. Or some really niche sports like lumberjack or mountain biking, they all have their own little subculture, right? Their own vernacular. Mm-hmm. It's almost like they're like a traveling gypsy or circus and all of these people the athletes the trainers the coaches go from town to town to town every weekend we're like bull riders on the pbr and they perform and then they get on their planes or the buses and they go to the next city and there's all kinds of little subcultures and smaller niche sports that are doing this every weekend whether we know it or not it's fascinating yeah i'm I've seen, uh, like I said, I live in Maine and all the, you know, small towns, they have, like, demolition derby, they have bull riding, they have, like, the cow roping. Uh, I actually have a co-worker that just does, uh, like, amateur uh, racing. He has a car that he works on every week, uh, you know, every week, and he goes racing, and, you know, if he makes money out of it, cool. If he doesn't, he does racing. <laughs> he has fun with it, and... It, it is funny seeing the, all these little towns and what they do and having fun. And I love that kind of stuff. You know, I remember growing up, I I had my biological father lived in India. And during the summer, I would be with him for a couple weeks. And he would take me to tractor pool, demolition derbies, and, you know, pig, pig races, stuff like that. So, I remember that kind of stuff. Well, I can remember when I traveled you know, for a living with, as a sports broadcaster, this is going back 20 years ago, um, you know, flying into these tiny little airports in, in West Virginia and South Dakota where, you know, the terminal is about as big as a, a coffee shack. I mean, tiny. I can remember less a week before 9-11. So I was still flying all the time. And I flew from uh, Pierce, South Dakota, which is the capital of South Dakota, or North Dakota, no, South Dakota. And uh, to New York. So I flew into Newark and then drove across, you know, Manhattan to this event in Long Island. And we never, uh, at the airport and pier, even once went through a metal detector. Just got right on the plane. A week before 9-11, shows you how life has changed. Yeah, oh, I remember, I do remember traveling a little bit uh, as, a, as a kid. And it's like, you can sit there and be at the boarding gate, families there, waiting for you yeah. to get off. And then, like, uh, I've done more traveling after uh, 9-11, and it's, like, metal detectors, and they have to lick your bags, and, like, family cannot walk you to the terminal where the where the planes leave. And so it's a crazy world how that happened, uh, what, 22 years ago now. That, it's crazy how yeah. far along that was, and I can remember yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, this... So we talk about sports casting. What is one of the uh, coolest events you've been to at, uh, in broadcast doing covering all the sports you were covering? Ooh, that's a good question. So to me, what makes an event cool might might be a little different or sound different to the audience. Because for instance, one of my favorite events was I covered the Big Sky basketball tournament like a dozen years ago when it was in missoula so missoula is like three hours away from me missoula think about the movie a river runs through it right with brad pitt missoula is just a cool college mountain town in montana and i was there for like five days and i was you know getting paid to sit at the midcourt line and call college basketball games like all day long it was great i loved it um and then oh gosh about 20 years ago I covered a lumberjack event in Ketchikan, Alaska. I'd never been to Alaska. So I'm like, all right. So I 
this is, you know, once in a lifetime, who knows if I'll ever get back here. So I took my wife at the time and my two young boys and, you know, we got there a few days early, stayed a few days late and, you know, I fished for salmon and we had a blast. It was a lot of fun. Now, lumberjacking, I look at, I've seen some of the competitions of cutting the logs in between her legs or whatever. If that was me, I would probably hack off half of my foot in just one swing. It, I know it doesn't seem like much, but there's there's skill in the the events and the sport that they do. You know. Oh, it's incredible! Again, another one of these like little niche, um, what would you call it? segments of society, right? Uh, you know, not again, not just the athletes, but the spouses and the people who know what they're watching, know how to do it, right? Or, or used to work in the forests. And a lot of those guys, so you know, they're, what they're doing is they're chopping. So they don't use a saw. They use the axe when they chop between their legs. And there are a lot of guys that are missing their big toe. So some guys will wear steel-toed boots to prevent that. But but there's if you, if you took 10 lumberjacks to the beach, at least one out of 10 is going to be missing a big toe. <laughs> yeah, definitely would be wearing steel toes if I'm doing that. Even, uh, you know, just to try to save my toes because... That that takes some skill. That takes endurance. That takes strength, and it's, whoo! I, I love watching those things. They're like the Highland Games. I see them at like the Re- Renaissance Festivals. I love going on that weekend and seeing these big dudes just throwing logs and javelins and stuff. That's always fun to watch. It's just kind of cool. Yeah, I always call lumberjack uh, clicker stoppers. You're right. You know, you're 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 laying on your hotel bed, you're exhausted from day of travel, and you're just mindlessly clicking through the channels. When you get to lumberjack, you're going to stop, even if it's just for ten seconds. You stop because what is going on is what goes through your mind. I mean, yeah, yeah, that's definitely it. Now, are you retired from sports broadcasting now, or are you just kind of not doing it as much, or? Yeah, another good question. So sports broadcasting is very competitive. So, uh, you know, again, I did my two years at local TV and I got my big break because I loved covering outdoor sports. So I was, you know, 30. No, I was 29. I was 29 and I was on a network. Man, it was cable and a small network, but I was on network TV at 29. I'm like, here we go. I'm going to be the next Bob Costas of outdoor sports. And so I was with OLN for about five years. And it's kind of a funny story. And uh, we were covering alpine skiing. So, uh, and our studios were in Connecticut. And I lived in Idaho at the time. So I'd fly out for the winter, back and forth every weekend. And Bodie Miller, do you remember that name? Yeah, Bodie yeah. Miller, the Olympics. He, he okay. was in the Olympics so, around like 2006. He was like a big deal. Yeah, yep. Okay, he lives in Montana now. So anyway, it's, it's Herman Meyer, Bodie Miller, and all these big names of skiing. And this is what we're doing every weekend. So uh, one day they have a, uh, like a staff meeting of the executives at OLN in the CEO's office. And in every office up in the corner, there is, you know, a TV with OLN on. And so if you go into CBS, NBC, ABC, ESPN, at all their headquarters, they all do this. You know, they got the network on 24-7. You just mute it, right? Yeah. Yeah. So someone says, oh, wow, they're doing a great job with the Alpine ski covers this year. So meeting stops. You know, the CEO turns up the volume and they listen. And the CEO says, well, who's doing the play-by-play? Somebody says, that's Peter Young. And he says, well, who's Peter Young? And that's red flag number one. I've been like one of the main play by play guys for like four years. And then everybody kind of looks around the room like, you know, the head of production, the head of sales, whatever. They're like, um, you know, he's one of our main play by play guys. And then the CEO says, well, his voice is flat. Oh, so that was about a, man. So that was about a year before my contract was up. And so I never got my contract renewed. So then I'm like, well, I'm Peter Young. Come on. You know, ESPN or somebody will hire me. 
So in the meantime, I sold real estate till ESPN called and it took ESPN eight years to call. So it was a very humbling moment. Wow. So you're in between gigs for like eight years, but you're doing other well, stuff. Yeah. Well, I mean, I did, I did some freelance, but I mean, you know, my real my broadcasting career was on the rise and then it just dropped off a cliff. I did some to, you know, to keep it alive and, you know, living in Idaho, Montana, out of sight, out of mind. And it just never got back to where it was. And now being a single dad, I really can't afford to travel. And they're hiring guys half my age, which is fine. Yeah. Um, one more question about your broadcasting career is what is the biggest difference that you've noticed the way today sports broadcasting is to when you started? Like, I'm assuming you said in the mid, uh, early to mid 90s. Yeah. Well, I would say there's a couple differences. Number one, the access to information is so much greater now than it was even when I was around. Because when I was around, I don't even know if I ever used email until you know probably late '90s. Um, and so the access to you know instant information. Okay, you know, Jim, calling this game tonight. What's the quarterback's completion percentage? And you know, how many interceptions has he thrown in the last three minutes of the game? I, I can get all that in, in seconds nowadays, right? For yeah. any sport. Whereas back then, it was a lot harder to do. Now, because of that, I will say, a little bit of a pet peeve of mine, is that if you watch uh, mostly football, but if you watch any sport now, boy, the guys talk a lot. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I remember the guy that hired me is a brilliant producer, Rick LaCivita. So Rick was like a child prodigy, went to Harvard. Then he was producing, you know, Olympics, Monday Night Football with Howard Cosell. He's done World Series. He's he done everything. And then he went to OLN and he hired me. And I thought, oh, my gosh, here we go. Like, I'm going to train for the master. And he always told me, less is more. Less is more. In other words, you, Les, or me, or Howard Cosell, or anybody else, will never come up with something to say that's better than the sound of the crowd after a home run. Yeah, definitely. Uh, <laughs> now you have all uh, the sports commentators now, too. You know, it's like a rise. Everybody's doing sports shows that have 24-hour, you know, sports news networks. Everybody has a show, and then every, and especially in college, you know, every, every what is the conference has their own radio station, TV network. It's, it's insane. It really is. It's, yeah, the market is saturated. There's no question about it. Yeah, I, I can tell you that. Just like I was saying, as a photographer, it's over the years. I guess during the pandemic, everyone's opening up their own little shops and doing this and doing that, and people are attacking it. It's, it's just a dog eat dog world, and I want nothing to do with that. I want to continue <laughs> doing what I'm doing, and that's it. You know, like I was saying is. I, did, were you just gotten to a point where you're broadcasting the career and you're just like, you know what, like, I've already moved past this. I, I just, you know, I don't care about it much anymore, you know? I did. It took a long time. I really missed it. I, I thought um, I was pretty good at it. Now, if I was that good at it, I would still have a job. But I thought I was, you know, pretty good at it. I really enjoyed it. I tell you the thing I missed the most is the camaraderie, you know, being on a team, being a part of the crew, you go there and you do the event, you know, you high five everybody after a good game. And then you go back home and you see the same crew next weekend or next month. So I miss that. I miss the camaraderie, hanging out with the guys. Um, but I don't miss the travel. I can tell you that much. I don't miss living in an airport. 
I I can kind of attest to that too. Like I I love the uh, the photo shoots and the people I worked with. I don't miss any of the other stuff that comes along with it. You know what I mean? I do miss the like they're like an adventure. You know, we'll go to a different location and do something different, and and it was always fun. Cause then. Like I said, afterwards, we'll, like, go get something to eat, you know, hang out and have fun. That's what I miss. But all the other stuff, I, I, I just, uh, I got a good life, you know, and I'm not trying to mess that up. And it's not worth it to me, you know. So. Good. I, I do other, I'm doing other things that I've been doing, like writing and, and talking to wonderful people like you, doing a podcast that I know only maybe get, like, 10 plays or whatever. that. I'm doing my own radio show, basically. I've tried for years to get into the radio biz, and it just never happened, but it never stopped me from making things happen. You know, like you said, you got to keep going. Well, the technology, you know, um, has made it easier for people like you to get podcasts to get your story out. It's made it easier for people like me to self-publish to get my story out. So, yeah, the technology uh, advances in this century, you know, People like you and I couldn't have dreamed of doing this no. 30 years ago. No, not at all. Yeah. Now, we're going to switch gears here, talk a lot about the amazing, cool stuff you did broadcasting. And you have talked about leaving a cult. Now, how how did all this happen? You know, where did, Where did you start with that? Well, I un- unwittingly married into it is the short story. Oh, man. So um, when I met the love of my life, Paige, and I've changed her name, but that's what I call her in the book, Stop yeah. the Tall Man, Save the Tiger. Mm-hmm. So I met her in 1996, and uh, even before I met her, she's a tall, beautiful blonde woman, and, you know, I'm living in Pocatello, doing the 6 to 10 sports for the ABC affiliate. And I'd seen her around town, and I remember asking a buddy, and I didn't even know her name. And he's like, oh, I knew who that is. It's Paige Clausen. He said, just be, be careful, because they have this really weird family guru. So I heard about the weird family guru before I ever even met her. So then about a few weeks later, I do meet her at a singles Bible study, right? I mean, that's why you go to singles Bible study. And um, you know, we were married nine months after that. But wow. shortly after meeting Paige, she told me about this bizarre dream that she had, the dream's not so bizarre, but the bizarre interpretation her quote-unquote Uncle Robert shared with her. So Uncle Robert was not her real uncle. He was born and raised in Syria. And Paige, like me, you know, tall, typical Northern European looks, blonde hair, blue eyes. Uncle Robert, uh, short, chubby, olive complexion, jet black hair, bald, bulbous nose. And he got to know Paige's parents at a small, tiny seminary in Fresno, California in the early 70s, before Paige was ever born. And glommed onto Paige's parents and had a very one-sided, dominant, cult-like relationship with her parents. So Paige was born into this world. So her whole life, she always heard about how brilliant and amazing Uncle Robert was. They lived in the interior of British Columbia. He lived in Southern California. But they would always call him and had letters and they would you know, visit maybe once or twice a year. Then she moved to Idaho to go to college. So that's where we met. She just finished her master's degree at Idaho State. And uh, so her world kind of revolved around this guy. So when she shared this letter with me, what it was, was about 23 pages long. It was Uncle Robert's interpretation of her dream, which was bizarre. And you'll have to read the book to uh, understand the full story. But that's where the title comes from. But basically, the dream I truly believe was from the Lord warning her about him, about how this guy is not who you think he is. 
He is not the most benevolent, brilliant man in the world. He is a narcissistic little cult leader who has brainwashed your parents, and he's about to brainwash you. And um, he was able to twist the dream uh, and focus the interpretation so that she was to blame. He was the hero. And, and in the dream, it was, you know, this tall man entered her dream, and she couldn't see the tall man's face. And the tall man is there to get rid of the tiger. Oh, man. Of course, I was the tall man. And so the dream's interpretation was changed, and now it's been reverberating negatively for over 20 years. Wow. So it's like a family thing, more of a smaller – oh, wow. Man. Yeah, it's very small cult. So I always tell people cults come in all shapes and sizes. They do. They really do. Some are really big, like the Moonies, right? Um, and then there was, you know, Jonestown with Jim Jones in the 70s. Yeah, Jim Jones, the People's the Temple, uh, you know, the Nexus, uh, the Branch Davidians with the big cult, you know, uh, if you know from the 90s. But yeah. But at their core, at their foundation, cults are all about undue mind control, manipulative, coercive mind control. So no matter how big they are, they all have a leader, usually a man, but not always. There's always a leader. And so this leader, you know, they, they check all the boxes, right? They're always, you know, underneath the surface. They're pretty similar. They're narcissistic. Mm-hmm. Definitely. They make all the rules, but the rules don't apply to them. They have a grandiose sense of self. Everybody, you know, competes to be like the most favored child of the leader. So the leaders blur the traditional lines of the family or try really to destroy uh, the role of the family so that everybody's devoted to him, the leader, first and foremost. So, and they also act as the gatekeeper to God, no matter what religion it is. And that's ex- and, and Uncle Robert did all of that with us. So when I first met him, so I, I fell in love with Paige right away. Like two weeks in, I'm like, I'm, I want to marry this woman. Uh, I, I've, <laughs> I've been there like, done that. I, get where you, I can totally get where you're coming from. <laughs> so, but it was like, she talked about her dad and his Uncle Robert all the time. So I thought if I marry this woman, they're going to be a part of my life, so I have to meet them. Yeah. So about a month later, I met, I met her dad. Yeah, he's odd, but fine. And then a few months later, I finally met this mysterious Uncle Robert. And it was at Paige's older brother's wedding. And I thought, well, he's kind of weird and odd, but somewhat harmless. And I was wrong. Anyway, we got engaged, got married. And I, you know, for the first five years of our marriage, I thought we had the best marriage ever. I was the best husband ever. She'd be the best wife. I was madly in love with this woman. And I really didn't want much to do with Uncle Robert. I kind of thought he was weird. But slowly and surely over, you know, 5, 10, 15 years of our marriage, I went along with his crazy ideas to get along with my wife because she adored him and revered him. And if you're in a cult, you're not supposed to question the leader. You're not supposed to ask questions. Never. So he had a lot of crazy ideas and I would ask questions. And of course, he would never answer them. (laughs) He would only attack me for being too stupid to understand him. Now, so you weren't even joining the cult, and you seem like you have a good head on your shoulder. You can smell, you know, something that's not right from a mile away. But, you know, you're married and you're in love. How, how did that affect your marriage of you kind of questioning everything with, with going on? Well, eventually it destroyed it. Uh, she eventually left me after nearly 20 years of marriage to draw closer to Uncle Robert. But, um, again... For the first few years, he wasn't, at least to me, didn't seem like he had that large of a role in our lives. He didn't live where we did. We were in Idaho. He was in Southern California. But he was always a cell phone away, cell phone call away, always an email away. 
And, and looking back now, I realize how much she did rely on him and trust him. And I, I didn't really realize it. Maybe I was just blind to it. But then over the years, we would have these conferences. So we would go to northern Idaho to be with Paige's parents. And Uncle Robert would drive up. And uh, we would have a conference, which was basically sitting in their living room, listening to him talk for hours and hours on end, sharing his crazy ideas. And eventually, those crazy ideas just took over a greater role in our lives till eventually Paige wanted Uncle Robert to be our marriage counselor. I didn't really think we needed a marriage counselor, but she obviously did. And so then the last few years of our marriage were very, very difficult uh, for me. But the first few years were, were great. But again, it, it um, he took over it and just destroyed it and then um, destroyed my family. And, and I'll say this too, you know, I was fully brainwashed for about two, two and a half years. For, for many of those years, I wanted nothing to do with him. Then I kind of learned a grudging respect for him. The, which then blossomed and grew. I thought, well, geez, you know, my in-laws don't question him. My wife doesn't question him. Nobody else in our little group, I wouldn't have called it a cult then, questioned him. I was the only one. You know, maybe I'm missing something. Maybe it's me. And of course, now I look back, I think, no, it wasn't me. It was the only one who was not brainwashed to see how crazy it was. Because I always say, you never know you are in a cult. You only know you were in a cult. Because the moment you can say to yourself, you know, this seems like a cult is the moment then the brainwashing, the manipulation and mind control is starting to lose its effect on you. Because anybody who is brainwashed, this is not a cult, this is something better. We're not a cult, we're a, we are enlightened, fill in the blank. <laughs> it, you know, sometimes I have, I have friends all over the country, and I met them through a sport that I do called... Uh, it's either Way of the Sword or Daggy here, which is basically, it's, we're medieval foam fighting fighters, so to speak. We have rules, we have regulations, we have, you know, there's a board of directors, we have insurance. Like, there's so many different groups, but we all kind of intertwine because we like to grow the, the sport, so to speak. And it's fun. I started it in Florida, and I... Not only was the group I was part of, but there's other different organizations and everything like that. We wouldn't call ourselves a cult, but some people can look at us like that. But we're just kind of uh, just the same, same kind of like you said. It's more of like a, a team. We're the camaraderie and all that stuff, you know. And we we enjoyed it. And I still do it to this day. Is how I met my wife. I've created a group up here. It's how I met made friends in a state that I've never been to before. So it, it is funny. It's like I'm. I wouldn't call us a cult. There's nobody trying to be better. Nobody's trying to be anything. But, you know, it's just funny how you, you could probably look at it as being a man of sports of, you know, hey, maybe this is kind of like a little family or a little group. And I just not realizing it. So. Well, you bring up a good point, And um, here's how I will answer it. There's another lady who's not related to me, Daniela Young. And she was born into a cult. I mean, a, a bad one. It was sexually abusive. And then when she was um, uh, around high school age, was able to get out, start to have somewhat of a normal life. And then in her 20s, joined the army. And so like a week into boot camp, you know, where she's, you know, jogging with a backpack on and it's she's dripping sweat. And these you know commanders are screaming at her. And she says to herself in her mind, you know, did I just join another cult? And so throughout her book, what she makes the point is that no. Just because you are a part of a culture that might be unique, odd, even a little bit abusive, doesn't mean you're in a cult. 
right? There's a difference between culture and cult. Mm -hmm. So your phone fighting group might have its own little subculture. You guys are unique. Some people might call you odd. Yeah. You're interesting, right? <laughs> you have your own little rules and regulations and um, vocabulary, etc. That doesn't make you a cult. And so there are all kinds of cultures, right? And some can be abusive. That doesn't make them a cult. And I think that's an important distinction to make. Yeah, you're definitely right because, like, like I said, I, I'm I study a lot of different things. I know a cult is always based on a cult leader. He's very narcissistic. He's very has a high opinion of himself. He's either the prophet of God or he's like a living God, and he wants to kind of control everything. Everything that's happening in the world goes through him. Money, property, and you know, and the worser ones that literally. He can have access to, if he's a female, all the men that she finds appealing. If it's a male, it's all the females he finds appealing. Or vice versa with whatever in, in between, you know? And that's definitely not like the culture we have. There's, we have leaders that are elected and are held to a higher responsibility and can be removed from their positions as quickly as they're put into it. And... You know, everyone has the freedom to go home. You can leave whenever you want. You can do, you know what I mean? And I, I feel like, like you're saying, the culture is like that. And cults, you're either, you, you leave, you can no longer talk to your family. You have, you know, like you're, you're going through. You can no longer talk to your family. You get alienated. And it makes you look like you're the bad guy. Yeah, so um, there's a lot of shunning that goes evolve, goes along, you know, with, with cults. That you know, once you are once you're outside, let's say the circle of trust within that little cult, whether it's big or small, then you are shunned. So that happened with me. So when my wife left me in 2017, you know, that she started to tell our children that uh, I was the devil, that I was Satan, a sorcerer, a liar, abuser, a coward, chameleon, a snake, on and on and on. And kids being kids, you know, they they believe what these people in their lives that they trust tell them. So the kids thought all this was true. Thankfully, the courts got involved and, and um, sent the three youngest kids back to me to where they could now recover and see how unhealthy this was. And they still love their mom as they should. Yeah. But their mom was still brainwashed. And so it, it came from Uncle Robert, whose really was Robert Booty. And there was a, a direct line of poison, of hatred, of self-righteous condemnation and judgment from him into page and then got pumped into my kids. And it was mostly directed at me because, because I pointed the finger at uncle Robert and said, wait a minute, man, the, the emperor, emperor has no clothes. You know, he's not, he's not this incredible person. He's a fraud, man. I am so sorry that it, I, one thing, like you said, a pet peeve of mine is there's several of them, but one of them is when the parents don't get along and then they want to use the kid as a weapon. You know, like, they already have to deal with enough that, you know, they're now in two different households, and then they want to be used to be manipulated to be used against one to the other parent, and I am so sorry that that's going on. I, 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 can't, I can't imagine how that feels, you know, not a parent. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's awful, and it still goes on. Um, they call it parental alienation, you know, where the one parent tries to alienate the kids from the other. And so between my attorney and we have what's called a guardian ad litem, the court appoints someone to look after the best interests of the kids in a divorce, which we're now divorced, and then a family counselor. So between these three people, these three ladies had like combined 60 years of experience. 
between them. They said our case was the worst case of parental alienation they had ever seen. It was bad. And, you know, like you said, you you can't give up. You got to keep going. And that's why you're still to this day fighting it because, you know, you have to because you have to you you love your kids. And you'll do anything for him, and I and I I understand that, and I just, but it doesn't make it any easier. And this, the, you know, young people and people in general, they need to listen to your story, watch, read your book, the show, just how to how you keep going, and you keep going, and you don't let the things beat you down and and slow you down, hurt you, where you're just like, you know what, I'm done. You know what I mean? No, you you keep going. And I don't know how it's. It's rare to see that, I feel like, in today's day and age of this people that can deal with the struggle and keep going. I just, it, you're, you should be an inspiration, and I'm definitely going to be pushing you out because this thing is actually bringing back m- memories of my own childhood, you know? And, man, I I, I don't even know how to, what to say is, man, I, I just wish the best for you. I can say I can pray for you and all that and everything I can do to help, but... At the end of the day, it's you basically fighting by yourself, and man, I am sorry. Sorry to get a little well, emotional on you. No worries, and I appreciate it, Les. Um, I will say this: it's it's thankfully it's not me anymore. So, cults control their members through isolation, secrecy, and paranoia. So, most of my family, so the extended young family, so my parents were still alive, my brothers, their wives, and nieces and nephews live around the country. Right. East Coast, West Coast. And I live in Idaho, Montana. So they didn't really know what was going on. They knew this weird Uncle Robert guy, but they didn't know much. They didn't know all of his crazy ideas. And uh, so then when I finally reached out to them and told them what was going on, they were stunned. Because when Paige left me, I didn't tell my family for four months. I was so beaten down and controlled that we always had to hide it. Because one of Uncle Robert's key tenets was all of recorded history is just basically one story of the Jews trying to take over the world and dominate Christians. So he's a raving anti-Semite. Okay. And so this was his theory, you know, and he discussed it ad nauseum. Okay. Right. And so I never, of course, never shared this with anybody, but since, since uncle Robert was onto the Jews, his life was in danger. So we had to protect him. And of course, then our lives were in danger. So we had to shred our trash. We couldn't say certain words on a cell phone, et cetera. Right. So now we've been sufficiently kind of paranoid and scared of the outside world. So now we've really got the secrecy, paranoia, and isolation. So we looked to Uncle Robert for everything, right? So then when she left me, and now she's telling the kids that I am a snake and a devil and a Satan. And of course, Uncle Robert's like, well, yeah, of course you are. And I'm believing all this kind of, sort of, but I'm just totally defenseless, getting just beaten down. It was never suicidal, but it was really bad. And uh, then it was my faith in God uh, and Jesus Christ. And then my friends and family who stepped in. And supported me. And, and they saw it right away, right? Like at that point, I was still like, no, please don't say anything bad about Pedro Uncle Robert. It's my fault. It's my fault. And they, of course, probably had a hard time with this, but it was obvious. It was obvious to me now that no, what they were doing was awful. But I couldn't see it in that moment. So the point is that because I then allowed friends and family back into my life where they've been kind of pushed out over the past 20 years because of this little cult taking over our lives, so they were able to help me see. So the Lord opened my eyes and ears. And so the main lesson then is, well, it's not so much how do you help somebody out of a cult, because that's very hard. It's how do you prevent it from happening in the first place? Uh, and so that is, most importantly, that you keep the lines of communication and fellowship open. 
So if unless somebody you know that just stops showing up to the you know the sword fighting or to bowling league, Friday night beers, Bible study, whatever it is, they stop calling, they stop emailing. Find out what's going on. Are you okay? And they have all praise for some new, like Nexia, right? Some new business leader, some new group, or some new pastor, some new guru. They wouldn't call it a guru. And they all praise, and you can't question this person. Well, those are all red flags. They don't mean this person you love is in a cult, but they're red flags. Yeah. So it's up to us to have those really kind of uncomfortable conversations, right? Like, hey, I really care about you. What's going on? And uh, that can help people. I mean, you're you're talking about faith. One of the best things that's happened to me recently, I've been, I talked about it, but I've been trying to do a mental health, just trying to get myself to understand why I do certain things and try to be better. Uh, just everything in my life, I'm trying to, it's, I was having issues with finding a good job just because, you know, in the job market and the way corporate America can be, it's cutthroat. People are horrible. People are mean. And I had to... You know, I wouldn't say I never have any anger issues. It's not like, you know, you say something, I'm going to start beating on people, stuff like that. Do I do get angry? Yes. But I'm not an angry person to where I'm violent. It's more of like, you know, I get hot-headed. I, I, I start being defensive and saying things I shouldn't be. And this over the this past um year, I started looking at myself in March and still on a journey of gotten better, but... I discovered the uh, Bible in a Year podcast, and that I've listened to that, and it's it helps me. And I know I, I don't talk about it much because it's a little personal, but you know it helped me. It's been getting me back into my faith, and you know it's not just about learning about the Bible. It's also there's history that goes along with it. The the guy that does it, I think his name is Father Mike. He's amazing. He's and uh, I would recommend that to anyone that just wants to feel like they're lost or kind of just needs something. I do that every morning when I'm working, and I listen to it, and it helps me get through the day, makes me happy, and, you know, I also have, like you said, I have friends and family that I talk to, you know, of, I, therapy would be great, but it's, it's money, you know, but, so I have friends and family that I can talk to about things, and different people, you know, know different aspects of my life, you know, it's a lot of talking with the wife, uh, one of my phone fighting friends when it comes to dealing with that, and then, there's uh, an older gentleman that is an ex-military, ex, uh, I think he did firefighter, and he's, I think he's in his 70s, but I have a number, if it's like an emergency, I can just call him and he'll just talk to me, you know, and so I have a system myself, and I've been getting better at it, and I, I, now that I'm not even sad about talking about it, because it's, it's a journey that I'm going through, and I'm not hiding it, you know, if, if that makes any sense, and just talking to you, just bringing up all this stuff, <laughs> I appreciate it. Uh, yeah, good. Well, it sounds like you've got a good support system in place. And for me, you know, people will say a couple of things. Number one, they'll say, well, it's, it's brave of you to talk about this. And I, first of all, thank you. You know, when people say that, say thank you. But I, I don't look at it as brave because, again, the other option is like, well, what would I do? Not share the story? Like go through all of this suffering and not share it so other people could learn from it? And then people will say, well, it's amazing that you didn't. Uh, you know, kind of turn your back on your faith, which again, I say, I wouldn't be here without my faith. Like my faith saved me. Yeah. So, you know, one of the main stories or one of the main lessons to learn from this is that, you know, if you don't know your Bible, uh, again, I would, I would start reading the, the New Testament. Just start with the Gospels, right? It's really easy. Just start with Matthew. 
Yeah. And, and the other thing about Christianity is it's, it's a free gift. So you don't need an Uncle Robert or any other guru. You don't need their approval. No. You can go straight to the source and it is free. We can't earn it. If we could earn it, we wouldn't need it. Yeah. And somehow we lost sight of that. And uh, and that's what a lot of these cult leaders do is they try to act as a gatekeeper to God. In other words, you'd have you got to get their approval first. And that's just not biblical. No, no, not at all. I mean, I, I can sit here and quote stuff from the Bible of like different stories of where you didn't need to talk to the prophet or the, you know, the 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 priest or whatever to have your own you know relationship with God. And we're gonna get off of that just because it's been a well, but. What is sport broadcasting? Would you tell people? We're gonna go back to that. And <laughs> sport broadcasting. What would you tell people that are trying to do it? You know, any. What would you tell them about starting that career? Well, it's fun. Number one, you know, you get paid to go to sporting events and uh, and talk about it. So then, there's all different kinds of jobs. Well, not all different kinds. There's a few. You know, it's play by play. Uh, where you're at the event and uh, doing the call. And then there's reporting, where you're a sports reporter. So that could be either TV or, or online, I guess. I'm sure they still have newspaper reporters in the big cities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you've got your your, your local and or network anchors, right? So you got ESPN. But then, like, in every city, mm-hmm. you probably have a main. You know, when they do the six intense sports, they get five minutes a night or three minutes. So you got those jobs. So, you know, some of those jobs, you're traveling. You're going to be on the road a lot, and you have to be prepared for that. Uh, other jobs, you, you, you don't have to. Uh, you could stick around and kind of be a big fish in a small pond. But it's very competitive. You know, a lot of people want to do it, and it's very subjective. You know, Some people will love you. Some people will hate you, and then you can do better. Uh, but it is wonderful. It's a lot of fun, but it is very difficult. You really have to be committed to it because you, know, you have to – your first job, like I did, I was living in Colorado at the time. I – applied for this and it was again it was fourteen thousand five hundred dollars the first year and if i said no there was 200 guys behind me that would have taken the job i mean you'll get that many applicants for a job like that and you got to take it and you move right away and i loved it but it's hard at first and let's say if someone is to wrap this up someone that is lost and you know might fall victim to someone like Uncle Robert to kind of force them into being their little group or whatever, and it's not going to be bad. How would you, what would you say to that, that person? Well, you know, it's tempting to just say, trust your gut, trust your instinct and all that. But, you know, for years, uh, I, I knew this guy was, was bad news, but I, I couldn't extricate myself from that situation because I loved my wife. Um, but it's, Again, the most important thing is to not allow yourself to be cut off from all of your historical relationships, whether it's family, if you're close family, or other friends. So for those last few years of our marriage, you know, I have high school and college friends that I just didn't talk to anymore because, well, they wouldn't know. They wouldn't get it. They don't know Uncle Robert. So I allowed myself to be isolated. That's the biggest danger. So keeping open lines of communication to people. And not be yes. isolated. That that actually makes a lot of sense. Uh, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on and talking with me and doing this. I appreciate it. It's been very wonderful. Uh, give out where they can find you. Yeah, sure. So you can find more information on me at authorpeteryoung.com. You can find all of my books on Amazon. So my Amazon bestsellers, the memoir, 
Stop the Tall Man, Save the Tiger. And I also wrote a novel called The Blue Team. And the sequel to that one will be coming out in 2024. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you want to follow me on social media, I'm on all platforms. You can either look me up by my name, Leslie Madewell, or my photography company, Madewell Art Photography. I know I'm on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, now known as X. If you want to buy my book, it is on Amazon. Just go to Amazon, check out the book section, type in my name, Leslie Madewell, and my book, Pathway of the Vengeance, will pop up. And I will be leaving a link in the show notes in every episode. And if you want to leave me a review or comment on any of the platforms that you listen to podcasts, please do that. I will appreciate it. And I hope I see you on the next episode.